Today I'm speaking with Dr. Bruce Whelan on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Uh, Bruce Whelan's an experienced specialist GP and he works in the areas of pain management, addiction and also in a broad range of complex physical and psychological issues that affect our health. Bruce, welcome to Navigating the Cancer Maze. Yes, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure, um, and I know that a lot of the things in your practice uh, dovetail with many of the things that we talk about here on Navigating the Cancer Maze each week. So um, to start, Bruce, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your life as a doctor, how long you've been practising medicine, and what you've actually witnessed during your lifetime regarding the evolution of medicine? I actually graduated in 1967 from the University of Queensland, having done a six-year course and so I have been practicing for 45 years now and the interesting thing about that I think for the listeners is I still really really enjoy what I do I had my 69th birthday last week <laughs> Grace came along too and I still do this with a passion what I do hmm. great and uh, in that time um, what have you witnessed that you'd say is the biggest uh, change in, in medicine and the way it's practiced the knowledge base from which we function has increased exponentially. Our knowledge of anatomy hasn't changed much. There have been changes there. But certainly all body systems, how they function, the biochemistry, and one really big area is genetics, which has been the human genome discovered in 2003. And that has made us have major advances in all areas of medicine and treatments from that. The explosion of drugs since the um, 60s, for example, in 67, the commonest antibiotic, amoxicillin, cost $100 a capsule. And Valium was discovered soon after then, uh, soon after that time. Um, but I'd say over 90% of medications, drugs that are used now were not available then, have been discovered since. Mm. So that is one huge change. Um, now you've got a rather eclectic and a special medical practice and a very special clientele. So can you tell our listeners about the types of patients that you see? I specialise, I suppose primarily, in addictions and that is addictions to Cannabis, alcohol, speed, amphetamines, and especially the heroines, um, opiate drugs, and run a clinic for about 130 patients who've been addicted to heroin and opiates. Um, that's one of my specialties. And tied in with that, uh, the, there is a lot of psychiatry and mental health problems that are associated with this addiction. And so I I've also developed my skills in that area. Because I work with opiates, I also get referred a lot of patients for the management of their chronic pain. And I find that on a lot of occasions, especially with cancer patients, their pain management has not been optimal, and it can certainly be improved um, to help them with that. I also get referred a lot of patients who have complex medical problems, where they're their medical problems are complicated and as well they have psychiatric problems 
pain problems and addiction problems <laughs> because every patient who's put on an opiate will eventually have two problems the first being the problem for which the pain that they're put on the opiate for the disease which is often cancer or especially back pain chronic back pain and added to this comes the problem of opiate addiction and dependence which is another problem for them um, when managed appropriately the opiates really help pain and when the pain settles after treatment it is possible with skill to get these people off the opiates and deal with their addictions mm, that's rather a uh, a large smorgasbord <laughs> <laughs> it is. It when is. i said eclectic it really is very eclectic <laughs> isn't it um, you know, you've talked about your drug addiction area, and I think that's an area where many people uh, turn away, and you've turned towards it. What drives Bruce Whelan uh, to do the work that you do? What's in the background? I know that the work that I do, a lot of doctors don't want to do, and that's why I usually have a waiting list of about three weeks before any new patient can come and see me. Um, I'm driven by the rewards I get in heal helping people to get better and healing people. Um, in many areas I suppose also for me um, the intellectual stimulation of actually solving the, the puzzle as to what is causing this person's problems I've always found fascinating and I've had many GPs over the years refer me patients where they weren't quite sure where to go next mm. and this is something I enjoy um, dealing with patients with complex problems um, a lot of people don't want to do that because it will involve multiple therapies and knowing the, the um, interactions of various drugs and what we do um, is very important. So that's probably what drives me, but certainly the rewards. Um, and if only I can convince other doctors that this is an area where there are many, many rewards you get when seeing your patients get better. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> uh, look, I know uh, that some of your own story in dealing with uh, trauma has profoundly impacted the way that you work with your patients because, um, you know, I think for myself, when, you, when you've had some life trauma, it does come back and, and impact. You, you come back and you just practice that little bit differently. So could you share some of, um, of that story and in particular how your life experience has influenced the way you, you practice now? Yes, Grace. I think, <laughs> to preface this, and this is actually a, a saying of Carl Jung's, the famous uh, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and it was in a movie called A Dangerous Method, which came out recently. And he said, and the quote is, only the wounded physician can hope to heal. And I don't think there is a, <laughs> a more profound statement than that. Uh -huh. um, and through my woundings... Um, it has helped me in being able to have the appropriate empathy and understanding of what my patients are going through. My story basically involves the, uh, the 2002 Bali disaster when my two daughters were there, one with a husband and, my hu and uh, her husband's mate. And just lucky for me, my two daughters chose that night to stay home instead of going to the sari club. The two boys went to the Sari Club and were blown away um, by the bomb there. And I was one of the first people on the ground um, out of Australia after hearing of all this and worked in the morgue area 
and did a lot of things there and I thought that I could deal with it. However, I developed, it was a few weeks later, quite severe post-traumatic stress disorder with flashbacks, nightmares, everything that's classically written about um, PTSD and that continued for some time. Um, but I had treatment for that and <laughs> during the initial phase of this I took myself away on a yacht that I built and lived reasonably isolated for a while uh, and during this time in 2004 the tsunami hit um, Indonesia, Thailand, Sri Lanka and through a comedy of errors I ended up in Sri Lanka running a big medical centre and dealing with some of my phobias which, was, which were death, disaster, destruction and dead bodies and I came away from that realising that I had actually healed myself to some degree by confronting the issues and that ended up in resulting it resulted in me being offered a job to the psychiatrist who was looking after me um, suggested that um, he would like me to come and run a, a drug and alcohol rehab centre here on the Gold Coast and I did that for three and a half years I was the main doctor there and developed an interest in dealing with addictions and that is how I, I've come on this journey at this later stage of my life <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a, that is quite a story. Um, uh, PTSD is something that we see, of course, quite a lot in, in cancer patients as well. And uh, particularly here in my practice, uh, it's one of the things that I focus on. So I'm sure a lot of people will take inspiration, actually, from hearing your story because often we don't think of um, the practitioners going through their trauma and, and how that can impact uh, their practice. So if we're speaking, um, Bruce, about trauma specifically for cancer patients, um, dealing with the trauma in the way that you've just described uh, is, is a little different than suppressing its existence. And I'd like you to just uh, talk about that in the terms of cancer patients, um, expression rather than suppression, and how that can value add to a patient's recovery. Yes, I firmly believe that counselling, appropriate skilled counselling, with the patient actually doing a lot of homework, a lot of work on their own, is the way to deal with PTSD. And there are um, now well-established techniques for doing this. Knowing that PTSD is basically one of the main fear responses the body has. And with recent knowledge in neuroscience, with the functional MRIs that are being done now, which tell us which parts of the brain specifically do this and that, and having attended a conference only in the last week and a half about this, um, it's very obvious that people have reverberating circuits going on in the emotional part of the brain. And as long as these circuits are firing, they will experience fear. Um, and these circuits actually have pathways that go down to the adrenal glands which cause the secretion of noradrenaline and cortisol which causes the, the racing pulse, the tremor, the sweating, the shortness of breath, of panic attacks which are very often associated with PTSD and these circuits just fire off and fire off. As in this conference the other day the uh, psychiatrist presenting it said that we have to somehow switch these circuits off and the first thing we have to do is have our patients feeling safe. That in the setting of what we're doing with them, they must feel safe. 
because only then can they switch on their frontal lobes, their smart brain, their reasoning brain, and deal with the actual events that happen and change these circuits. And it's, um, he, he made the point, the psychiatrist, that yes, our medications do help by, by changing the chemical suit, but without appropriate talking therapies, take the chemicals away and the patient is back where they started. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. Um, that's uh, very specific. I find that uh, very much with patients that come to me uh, that the mixture of uh, sometimes some antidepressants and ongoing therapy and then the the therapy takes over where the depressants leave off has has been very useful. Yeah, Um, certainly when patients are experiencing PTSD and the diagnosis of cancer which in my opinion sets off to some degree a grief reaction Mm. in people because they've lost a lot Mm. massive loss um, of the concept that they're going to continue living for a significant period of time and it appears to them that they won't be living for quite so long and so they'll have the normal grief reactions first being denial Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote about this a long time ago initially oh this can't be happening to me and a sort of head in the sand, <laughs> I don't want to do anything about this, and often a delaying a seeking treatment from this denial phase. And then comes the anger, which is directed towards self, often, but can also be directed towards the people who are trying to look after them, which is one of the problems that you'd know that you sometimes have to deal with. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and then guilt um, will often come along too. All those components of a grief reaction and hopefully <laughs> we can help them to get through a position of acceptance and then doing what is the appropriate things to deal with this monster they have in their bodies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it's a very juicy subject that we're uh, talking about and we're going to be back after we take a short break. We'll be back with Dr Bruce Whelan on Navigating the Cancer Maze and continuing our discussion about PTSD and other interesting things. Don't go away. Hi, it's Grace Gawler here again on Navigating the Cancer Maze and if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with uh, specialist GP Dr Bruce Whelan and we're talking at the moment about PTSD. So uh, before the break, uh, Bruce, we were talking about grief and um, its association with loss as well for cancer patients who are newly diagnosed. Now, one of the things that I see in my practice is a lot of dissociative disorders of varying degrees. Um, Patients have described this to me in many ways. Sometimes they'll say, I feel like I'm beside myself. I don't feel uh, the the old me's gone. I'm not me anymore. If I'm at the kitchen sink making a cup of coffee, I feel like I'm watching someone making a cup of coffee. Could you talk a little bit about that in terms of uh, what post-traumatic stress involves? Basically, when the brain is confronted with some information that just is too much for the person, to actually cope with, the person will actually dissociate and develop another identity which is separate from the one that's having to deal with all the stress. And it's a massive overload for the brain. And the other option is the brain just to stop working, where cognition, thinking, um, functioning, etc., just stops. And the person is almost vegetable-like, and quite withdrawn 
and usually diagnosed as depression, but it's due to the massive overload that they've experienced mm. with, their, with their illness. I've actually seen that um, in a personal sense in my mother's nursing home where a, a lady who was 53 years old, her husband suddenly left her and he'd been her rock uh, since they were married. They'd been married since teenagers. He had an affair and went off with a younger woman and she became just the person that you've described, actually, mm. and um, is now in this nursing home with a lot of older people. And it's been very, very sad to see. Mm. Um, yeah, she yeah. was a very high-functioning person before. Yeah. So uh, it's a delicate business, <laughs> isn't it? This it is thing very... called living and the mind and <laughs> our, our emotions, etc., etc. Well, thank goodness we're learning so much more from the, especially in the last two to five years, mm. with actually how the brain functions and all the circuits that are involved, and also what we can do about it. Mm, that's what I was going to ask you. If anyone listening today says, oh, gee, that's me, I can see myself in that, and I've had a cancer diagnosis or I've had a recent one, what do you think people um, can do? And is this an area where self-help can have an impact? I think in this area that professional skill counselling is absolutely essential. With skill counselling, it is very important that the person actually puts a lot of effort into, into what's being done in the counselling. I always give patients homework to do. They won't leave my office without... <laughs> <laughs> That's unusual for a uh, medical practitioner. <laughs> but without some documents with homework to do, with instructions to, as they're going through the journey with me, to be journaling, preferably on a daily basis, their thoughts and becoming mindful about... Mindfulness is a word that's being used a lot now, and aware of what they're feeling... Um, and what's happening for them, what their internal dialogue is, um, so that the therapist can actually work on particular specific problems for them. So, um, yes, reading self-help books is, yeah, is beneficial, right, probably for quite a lot of people. But in this area, I really think professional skill counselling um, is the best way to go. Mm-hmm. I, I guess also something that uh, reminds me there is people say, oh, I got in the car and I drove home and I didn't, I didn't remember the journey. And uh, I think this is an area where a lot of people live their life and you know, don't remember the journey um, you know, when uh, they've had traumas. And sometimes people don't know that they've had a trauma and they don't connect the, mm, the events that right. have happened that's with right. the trauma. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in that particular case, I guess professional help's the, the only help, and that's likely to come from people around you suggesting yeah. that you're not quite the same as you were. Mm. And that can be from GPs, it can be from nurses who are skilled in this area, from palliative care people, um, or from psychologists who are specifically trained in this area. Mm -hmm. And as we know, psychologists have particular interests in various areas, and so it's worthwhile actually trying to find somebody who is interested in helping you deal with the maze of getting through cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's good to say here that many hospitals, and particularly in the US, there are a lot of hospitals who do have excellent counselling centres. Um, and I think people often take themselves uh, away thinking, oh, yes, I can cope with it. But just a reminder today that um, it is best to get some professional help and don't be afraid to ask uh, because you might be surprised at the help that's actually available. Uh, moving on with another part of PTSD is depression. And this can, of course, be another person's reaction to trauma. And so many patients are really frightened of taking antidepressants. 
can you suggest any tools for people experiencing depression and where do pharmaceuticals have their place in, in the, this kind of area? As you know, Grace, several patients you've sent to me um, have had quite severe depressions um, with their response to their, their cancers. And I think that, yes, medications do certainly help a majority of people because with cancer there is often, and with the stress and the constant thinking, uh, the PTSD, um, everything that happens in the brain tends to use up our chemical neurotransmitters, which are serotonin, noradrenaline and dopamine. And that's one thing that we can change reasonably easily. We can change the chemical soup of the brain and we can give, can give medications that will Im- increase the levels of serotonin, noradrenaline, dopamine. All the drugs that we have um, have, well, there are called the SSRIs, and that's just the serotonin ones. Then you have the SNRIs, which is serotonin plus noradrenaline. You have the old tricyclic antidepressants, which do all three. Um, and this requires the... Um, yeah, the skills of somebody who is skilled in using these drugs. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, your GP may have some or a reasonable amount of knowledge, and if that's the case, then it's appropriate for him to prescribe them. Um, yes, there are side effects, but usually minimal, as long as the drugs are prescribed appropriately. Um, with some of them, you start with half dosage for a week or two, then gradually build up. Um, but you need to keep in touch with your um, professional guide um, when on these medications. And these medications do help people to, um, to be able to think better, to process thoughts better, um, become less dissociated, and, um, and they do have an effect on PTSD. And um, they do reduce anxiety and fear levels to a significant degree but should not be used just on their own. Mm-hmm. And that was the point made at this conference the other day. Because without changing the circuits that are firing off, right, when, the <laughs> when the drugs are stopped, if the person hasn't developed new ways and new pathways in their brain, they will got a good chance of reverting back to where they were. The concept that neurons that fire together wire together, in other words, we form new circuits, that's what we want to be happening, and neurons that fire apart, wire apart, the old circuits go away. So a combination of the, of the medications and the counselling is very important, and that's sort of basically the new psychiatry that we're mm. going to be following from now on. And I guess that's based on what you were just talking about in terms of the new scans that we have mm. where we're able to actually see what changes are going on in the brain for the first time. Mm. Yeah. Which is pretty we've remarkable. Sort of, we've sort of known for years that the back of the brain has to do with sight, <laughs> the frontal lobes have to do with thinking and all that sort of thing. But now the extra knowledge is making it so much more interesting and making our work in a way um, a bit easier. Mm. Mm. So I've seen in recent times you're, I mean, you're very passionate about what you do, but I've noticed there's a rise in the passion uh, with what you do uh, as you've been applying this new knowledge uh, with regards to emotional and psychological therapies. Um, for you in your practice, in your day-to-day practice, what, uh, what kind of outcomes are you now seeing and, and how has it sort of changed the way that patients are relating to you? You spoke of safety 
um, before the last break. So would you like to just enlarge upon that a little bit? Yes, basically, there is no point in doing any form of talking therapy with a patient unless they're feeling safe and feeling a sense of being in control of the situation. Because once fear, um, the fear circuit fires off, our smart brain, our frontal lobes, just switch off. They just stop working, and so you're talking into the wind. Mm -hmm. So quite often um, I will spend some time talking about other things. Um, I will um, Techniques that I will use will be the breathing technique, of getting the person to just focus on their breathing and gradually slow their breathing. And this would be before you're doing anything this in your consultation, yeah? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And then the, another technique is what's called grounding, which is using your senses, all your different senses, sight, hearing, taste, smell, etc., going through each one individually and focusing on one particular thing, such as quite often I'll get the patient to lean back in the chair and say, okay, um, apart from seeing, it's good to close your eyes, um, I'll get them to close their eyes and say, now, just feel the weight of your body pressing into the chair and let that gradually go down your back and then through your bottom and through your legs, etc. And then I might, and I spend some time doing that. And also while they're doing that, they're slowing their breathing at the same time. And you can actually see the patient's expression change mm-hmm. as they start to experience the, the fear actually settling, feeling safe. And then I might say, okay, now, with your eyes closed, just listen to what's happening. Well, in my room, there's the buzz of the air conditioner and the strange little clicking noise <laughs> that I get them to focus on. Um, and then I might say, okay, open your eyes now. Um, I actually paint in oils, and I have some of them sitting in the surgery. And I say, okay, look at that painting up there, and I want you to focus just on the vase there. I paint vases of flowers, mainly. And look at it, look at the colours, look at the textures, look at the shapes, and really focus. And so the person goes through their senses, um, using each one, it can be smell, um, and added to this, you can actually get people to do um, guided Im- imagery, where they actually go and put themselves in a setting, such as on a beach setting or something like that, and do this to relax themselves. Um, these are sort of meditative type practices, which I think are very beneficial, but it's important to have your patient settled like this. Then it's possible to use any of the psychotherapies, depending on which is most appropriate. And we have cognitive behavioural therapy, we have gestalt therapy. There's so many, and recent evidence suggests that only in a few situations where it might matter a bit as to which therapy you're using, as long as the therapist has a good rapport with the patient, the patient is feeling safe and can continue with the therapist over a period of time, and we're talking about months to years. Um, There's not much difference between the different therapies that are used. I deal a lot with people who have what's called borderline personality disorder, which is the major cause of substance abuse and addictions. And there are two therapies for that. One's called dialectical behaviour therapy, looking at the extremes that people go to and helping them to find the middle ground and another therapy called schema therapy, which looks at the maladaptive patterns that thinking people have. 
And there's 80 of them. That's pretty recent. That's 2005 onwards. Okay. Well, perhaps we can come back (laughs) after the break and talk a little more about that. Our time again is uh, catching up with us. So we're here on Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, and today talking with Dr. Bruce Whelan, a specialist GP. Hi, we're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze. I'm your host, Grace Gawler, speaking today with Dr. Bruce Whelan. We've been talking about some very interesting psychological subjects today, PTSD, uh, dissociation, addictions, um, many, many different areas. And we're coming back now with talking with Dr. Whelan about alternative medicine and, in particular, cancer patients. Um, could you sort of give us a view, your view on alternative medicine and what you've seen cancer patients doing on their path to recovery? Well, as you know, Grace, you've been referring me patients for the last year <laughs> who tend to self-refer them to, to you mm. because of your um, being a naturopath initially um, and having watched what you do, I consider that you are probably as well or even more skilled than most of the cancer specialists that we have here on the Gold Coast anyway (laughs) with your knowledge of basically the whole field of alternative therapies and also the knowledge of the western medical approaches and I've seen unfortunately um, too many patients who've chosen the alternative field um, and (laughs) presenting to the medical profession when the horse is out the gate and bolting down the road and it's sort of a massive rescue mission to try and help these people live longer Um, some of them even come with massive secondaries etc to western medicine expecting to get a cure and often it's a bit late for us to do that and as you know Grace um, the use of the best that we have in the west combined with some alternative therapies, which you know work, um, which are actually used in your in the clinic in Germany, which we'll talk about later, um, is the best way to go. Mm. Mm. But I've seen too many horrific scenarios. Are there any of the patients that you've seen, without naming names of course, but are there any cases that have really um, impacted you in, in the way that they've presented when they've come to see you at the clinic? Well, there's one patient you referred to me, and I think I saw him, what, eight or nine months ago? And he had cancer of the throat and mouth with massive secondaries sticking out (laughs) a couple of inches on either side of his neck. He was living through a small hole in the back of his mouth as far as his breathing and eating goes. And and, uh, basically, it looked as though he wasn't very far from death. And so you referred him to me. I referred him to the cancer specialist we hear on the Gold Coast, a very good um, oncologist who also has a viewpoint of having an open mind and looking at new therapies, the best of what the West has to offer, and also being accepting of some of the um, effective alternative therapies. And so I referred him to him. He actually sent him into our local big hospital here um, specifying what drugs to use and there have been some new drugs that have been developed and at nine months and when he first saw me he was in incredible pain on high dose opiates and at my last visit seeing him a couple of weeks ago um, having had the, the specific drugs that were used 
having had radiotherapy to the area, which caused some complications for him initially, but they're getting better now. Um, I saw him, and his latest PET scan shows all the cancer is gone, and he can eat properly, no problems with that. He's putting on weight and requires absolutely no pain relief. Um, now, that's an exception to the rule, but it's a really good story. <laughs> it's a great story, and, uh, yeah, I think he's very pleased to be seeing this Christmas. I don't think, uh, you know, things were very good last year. So we talk a lot about on navigating the cancer maze, about getting this balance, and it's really good to hear you emphasising that as well for our listeners. Um, just like to touch on attitudes of patients and, and compliance. Uh, what... What percentage do you think that the attitude of the patient, the ability to change, uh, makes towards their healing and recovery? Initially, many patients are very sceptical about change being possible. However, with good therapy and counselling, they can experience change. And as I explained, change only occurs slowly in small increments at a time. But after they have experienced some change, which is observable to them, they then become very interested in following the guidelines of therapy. Mm. Mm. So that's a, that's a feedback that works for the patient. And their motivation improves dramatically at that stage. And that works with virtually all the patients I see over all areas. Do you think that the patients are liking it because you're in, they, they sense that you're involved with them? and that there is that safety factor and that, that you've got involvement and you're interested in them? I think one of the prime requisites for a doctor is to be caring and show compassion. Um, yeah, <laughs> I tell my uh, patients who come to see me at my heroin clinic when they first meet me, I say, it's said and I think it's true that I'm kind, caring, compassionate, empathic and not judgmental. However, on the other side, I'm firm. I don't book any nonsense. And when I say I want to do something, I have an expectation that you will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that caring, um, establishing a very good therapeutic relationship, and something I didn't know until I went to this conference a couple of weeks ago, is that the therapeutic relationship results in secretion of increased amounts of dopamine in the brain of the patient and of the therapist. No, that is interesting. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating, and that's probably why I like doing it. I get a dopamine buzz when my patients are doing well and that sort of thing. Yeah, equal therapeutic exchange. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, we've talked about addiction, and uh, in working with cancer patients, I often see addictions play out in other roles. I mean, classically, you think of addictions as drug addictions. Um, but we see a lot of patients who become addicted to diets. They, some patients are addicted to perfection. Um, some patients have had alcohol issues. There's, there's many, many ways that this actually comes out um, in abuse and addiction. <laughs> Um, could you explain just a little bit more about the addictive part of the brain? And uh, on the upside, what happens when a person turns the corner, like they've, they've, they've had a really bad addiction and um, they overcome it? Well, do we know about the changes in their brain, for instance, like before and after with these scanning techniques? Yes, there are changes that are observable. Um, we now know that the, there, are circ- there are pathways that run especially from the midbrain there's a nucleus 
um, in the brain called the nucleus accumbens, um, which is specifically involved with addictions. And that's a nucleus that um, is involved with the reward system in our brain. And there is, in response to these circuits running, um, and these circuits go up to the frontal lobes as well, uh, there's release of lots of dopamine. So um, when a person becomes addicted to something, then they experience these rewards and they have a dopamine every time they have the drug or whatever it may be. Now, with respect to addictions to diets and spiritual practices, etc., um, I think some of these occur because the person initially feels out of control. Mm-hmm. They feel they have no control over their life. Something is happening to them. They don't know what to do. And this gives them a sense of control, which they haven't had before, in a, in a strange way. Um, and so being fussy and developing fads with respect to what you eat, etc., can be a sense of control. And unfortunately, there are people who promulgate special diets, especially raw vegetable diets, as if they're going to be curative mm-hmm. um, for patients with cancer. Um, I, f- I personally don't believe that by changing your diet and just having raw, uncooked vegetables can really cure any cancer at all. Yeah. But this, this gives them a sense of control. And as you know, Grace, when I went over with you to, to the clinic in Germany, the patient that arrived with two massive suitcases of dietary supplements, which he took obsessively. Um, and talking to him, he, he obviously felt that this was giving him a sense of control. And he, he had been, I suppose, in a way conned by people to buy all these preparations and spend an absolute fortune on this. Um, and con because he's told that if he follows this diet and takes this and that and something else, it's going to cure his cancer. Um, unfortunately, that's not true. Mm. Yeah. yeah, as well we know. Um, I think that's uh, another area, Bruce, that's very uh, untouched when we're talking about uh, cancer therapies is this area of, of how patients become uh, addicted to many, many aspects, like mm. there's diet and there's a whole spectrum, even the, the spirituality, the meditation. So I guess mm. there's always the, the too much of a good thing mm. is going to be a problem. That's right. Yeah. 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 So um, let's move on now to patient stories. Um, what's a story that's touched you from your practice in a, in a meaningful way? Perhaps a story that's, that's actually eh, affected your life in some way from, uh, say, some of the patients we've been just talking about, whether they're drug addiction patients or, or whatever? I suppose, yeah, I can think of so many. <laughs> I bet you can. <laughs> I have to think of one. But overall, um, I spent three and a half years at the Drug and Alcohol Rehab Centre, and they were generally 19 to 27, 28-year-olds coming in um, who had underlying their illnesses, um, their addiction was their, their borderline personality disorder, um, sometimes schizophrenia, sometimes bipolar disorder, um, that was partly responsible for the substance abuse. And I worked with these people, and even when I left there, um, I continued in seeing them in my private general practice. And over the next couple of years, as I worked with further counselling, management, etc., and also referred them to psychologists and appropriate people. 
the management of the illness since I couldn't do all the counselling myself <laughs> for so many people. Um, I have in my mind so many beautiful stories. One week, and it was actually on a particular day, four patients I'd, I'd, I'd met like five years previously came in on this day. Three guys and one girl and three, two of the guys were now doing second, third year university. Um, another one was doing a diploma. The girls, um, the girl was doing something really quite incredible. They had totally reinvented themselves. They no longer had addiction problems. They had actually um, changed their personalities and if, if requiring medication for treatment of a condition, we're continuing on medication, usually on a much lower dose, and that's what we've learnt too, that we should be looking at trying to use the least possible dose of medication in our patients. And we're having very successful lives. Now, that's the sort of rewards that I get, and that mm. was just on one day. <laughs> yeah, they're the rewards you talked about earlier and why you like to be in practice. Um, so we're actually coming up to a break now in Navigating the Cancer Maze. We'll come back after the break and talk a little bit about the Halvan Clinic. I'd also be interested if we can pop in um, a little bit of time around talking about the schema therapy that you mentioned earlier mm. before we actually go into that. So uh, we'll be back shortly with Dr Bruce Whelan on Navigating the Cancer Maze and I'm your host, Grace Gawler. We're back with Navigating the Cancer Maze and speaking with Dr. Bruce Whelan. Now, before we went to our break, um, we were talking about um, some of the stories that have touched uh, Dr. Whelan in his life, and we were talking about the rewards from that. I asked him if he'd be prepared to give us an overview of his new uh, approach in therapy, schema therapy, which he's finding very helpful in his practice and I think will be very useful for people dealing with cancer. So, Bruce, tell us about schema therapy. Schema therapy. Well, schema therapy um, was developed by an American called Jeffrey Young and interestingly, I picked up a book the other day which he'd written in 92, 1992 because Schema Therapy came out in 2005, and it was a book called Reinventing Your Life. And by reading that, I can see the journey he was on to developing his concept of Schema Therapy. Now, Schema Therapy was specifically developed to deal with patients with what, what is called borderline or emotionally unstable personality disorder. But as I looked more and more at it, I became aware that most people had some of the schemas that he wrote about. Schemas are patterns of thinking, maladaptive patterns that don't work for people, about themselves, others, and the world in which they live. And he wrote about 18 of them. There's probably a few more, but so, um, generally under, under the heading of the 18 schemas, most people will, will find that they, they identify with some of them. Now, as I look into it, I find that so probably most people have quite a few schemas. Three, four, five only to a mild degree. And so they live their lives quite successfully. When people um, have had especially childhood abuse, trauma, um, then they will have sometimes 15 of the 18 schemas to quite a severe degree. And unless they deal with these patterns of thinking, which are once again what I talked about, reverberating circuits and like paradigms that just, that, that's how they live their life, um, that's how they think, 
and every time every time something happens a trigger happens they experience something they fire off this circuit unless that circuit has changed that person is going to continue with problems in their lives and interestingly the first therapies developed for dealing with borderline um, was called dialectic behavior therapy Marshall Linehan in America also developed that researching people who were suicidal or attempting suicides and she found <laughs> these people had a lot of things in common and coined the term borderline because they're on the borderline of becoming psychotic but I haven't seen many of my patients become psychotic so I don't think it's a very good term and we're now using the term emotionally unstable personality mm-hmm. disorder um, and she noticed that these people tended to go to extremes the world was either black or white people were either good or bad um, and they either loved people or hated people with nothing in between mm-hmm. and so the concept of dialectical therapy was the Greek word dialect meaning discussion about the opposites and finding a way to the middle ground now this and underlying this is the concept of mindfulness becoming aware of what your thoughts your feelings reactions are I find schema schema therapy helps people to yeah to be more mindful and not have to spend so much time discovering where their problems are Mm -hmm. and so that's what I use Um, in dealing with these patients with all their addictions. With cancer patients, um, that can probably trigger off um, mild schemas they've had during their lives. Um, And, you know, for example, um, that there won't be somebody there to take care of you and look after you um, throughout life. That's one of the schemas. Mistrust, abuse, not trusting people. feeling that you're different from the rest of the world socially isolated there are so many of them that are probably fired off by the experience of being told you have cancer and so this could be helpful in dealing with these people also yeah um in our discussions which has uh, brought about today's interview in fact i I think that there's a great place for it Mm. uh, because it's certainly been my experience and hasn't uh, really been named. We know that people diagnosed with cancer undergo quite a number of psychological and emotional shifts and changes, mm. and uh, I think this type of therapy could be really, really useful. I give my patients a handout which lists all the 18 schemas, mm-hmm. and I, they take it home with instructions to read through them and to actually tick off the ones that they think they identify with and choose them in order of which is the worst, and at the next consultation, we discuss that. And that's a, a, an example of trying to stop the reverberating circuit, use the smart mind, and create new pathways of viewing the world themselves and where they fit in it. Mm, that is a great explanation. Thank you <laughs> for that. I'm sure a lot of people are going to find that very useful. Um, moving on to talking about German cancer treatments and uh, specifically about the Halvang Private Oncology Clinic where you recently uh, paid a visit and met with us and a group of patients. Um, after your experience there, do you have any thoughts or comments about the type of treatments that you witnessed there and um, if you'd just like to enlarge upon that? Yes, Grace. Well, um, I was quite amazed to see what was being done there because it was a very much a multi-pronged multifaceted approach to the management of cancer. Um, The various things that I observed being done there, um, which were things that (laughs) could be done in Australia as well, um, but weren't, Mm -hmm. some of them, 
and I looked at it from the point of view, what could we bring back to Australia? And most of the things, the techniques, for example, the the uh, what's called transarterial chemoembolisation, where uh, an MRI is done to show the blood vessels feeding the tumour, because every tumour has its own blood supply, and then using a CAT scanner to put a tiny catheter into the femoral artery um, and put it right into the blood vessel, inject very high concentration chemotherapy that is known to work against that particular type of cancer, and then little beads to block the blood supply, and that's called TACE. Um, that was done there, and I saw the, the top specialist in the world doing this, Dr. Bogle, at the Fra- Frankfurt Hospital. So it is a conventional treatment. And when I came back, I was told that, yes, it can be done here, but uh, tends to be only used for secondaries in the liver, mm-hmm. whereas he was doing it on secondaries almost anywhere, as long as he could find a blood vessel. Mm-hmm. And um, from what i talking to him, he said he was getting some good responses. Yes, so he is one of the few people in the world having good responses with mesothelioma as well, which is um, very, very difficult to treat. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, the other things they were doing was using some what would be considered almost alternative therapies but on the borderline Mm -hmm. of alternative and conventional medicine with drugs that improve the immune system um, such as glutathione um, alpha lipoic acid um, a very old alternative medicine um, called ornithine aspartate omega-3, some vitamin C. Uh, But, as an aside, I see some of the, inverted commas, integrative doctors treating cancer patients um, purely with vitamin C here in Australia and charging a fortune for it. And these are the doctors that really should be actually almost outlawed because they're, they're part of the group of people that actually conduct what in my opinion is cancer cancer patient abuse mm-hmm. for people who are very susceptible will spend large sums of money um, to try and improve their life expectancy and these doctors are not qualified and are just using just one of the many many things that can be done and I saw the patients having their daily intravenous infusions and also new drugs that are available um, in Europe and <laughs> being used um, which we can't get in Australia. One of them, Removab, which is a trifunctional antibody, um, which in Australia is only allowed in as what we call an orphan drug if a person has massive secondaries in their abdomen and their stomach is all swelling up with what's called ascites, then it can be imported. In Germany, um, being used especially for head and neck cancers, lung cancers, breast cancers, and... Um, but... <laughs> I don't understand why these drugs are not allowed into this country. And that's a little journey that Grace and I and some others will be going on in the near future. (laughs) Yes, it certainly is, because uh, it takes a lot. uh, For people listening here from the USA, it's not so far to travel across to Germany. But for any of us folks in Australia, we have the tyranny of distance. Um, it's very, very difficult, very taxing on cancer patients. 21 hours by plane, it took me. <laughs> <laughs> 21 hours by plane. And there's all kinds of issues that come from that, including um, DVT and uh, possible embolisms as well for cancer patients to deal with. Um, fatigue is another thing that's, that's really...
really big with that. So uh, with uh, being at the clinic, uh, you did have a conversation with uh, Dr. Yanis Papasitiriou from RGC Gen Labs. Now, we've interviewed on this program before Dr. Ray Hammond, who runs RGCC USA. Um, you have a particular interest because of many of the people you see also have hep C. And, uh, of, of course, hep C can be also connected with cancer of the liver. And, and other cancers. And other cancers yeah. as well. So um, what does the future hold, do you think, for um, virus treatments, uh, virus diagnosis, in, in fact, in cancer medicine, from where you've looked at it so far? Yeah, I found the conversation I had with Dr. Yanis very interesting with respect to his concept that cancers a lot of cancers are probably due to indolent smouldering virus infections um, and he has developed in his lab um, treatments for this in the form of antisense compounds which are quite simple to use and apparently quite effective we know that uh, the glandular fever virus Epstein-Barr virus in a susceptible genetic group such as the Bantu Africans produces cancer of the lymph nodes around the neck. So that's one definitely known virally caused cancer. And of course cervical cancer now with and the HPV. HPV. Yeah. And I'm sure that we're going to find in due course that an awful lot of cancers are caused by HPV of various types. Mm. And then the, the work that he's doing with, the, um, with genetics of cancer and interestingly, this morning I was reading an article in the latest issue of Time about the, uh, the human genome and the prospects of the future about being able to diagnose conditions in people before they happen many, many years and the ethics and morality of that, etc. Um, but the other aspect, the other interesting article was the fact that using genetics of the cancer cells you can decide which chemotherapies are or are not going to work. This has been this has been been being done at Halfung for quite a number of years now. Uh-huh. It's, but it's reached Time magazine. It's reached Time magazine now <laughs> into that, in this week's issue, right. <laughs> and mentioned as a very new thing. Um, so I consider that Halfung and what they're doing there, they're at the forefront, cutting edge of cancer therapies, and so therefore I'm very happy um, for my patients that Grace refers to me and other patients she takes for them to go there because I know they're going to get the best and when they come back here then we can continue that treatment right? mm, which is very important yeah. uh, a lot of people go to Germany thinking it's a quick fix with, with the hep C bit um, I <laughs> something like 80% of my patients at my opiate addiction clinic have hepatitis C which is a virus which is spread by sharing needles bloodborne, you can't get it any other way um, yeah, tattoos rarely, transfusions, blood transfusions prior to the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, we called it non-A, non-B and didn't know what it was. Now, the treatment here in Australia and most of the world is using a drug called interferon, which m- makes people very, very sick. And they have to be on it for six months. And that is where um, you are trying to improve the immune response to the, to the virus. Um, Yanis has developed a treatment where the messenger RNA that the virus puts into the liver cell, turning the liver cell into a, into a factory for hep C, 
um, is he actually decouples the messenger RNA, makes up a dummy copy, blocks it, and stops the production of Hep C by the by the liver, and thus result and that lasts for a long, long time. That's stopping it, and then the person's own immune systems plus some some help um, actually gets rid of the Hep C. Yeah, and I would love to be able to do that here in Australia, but once again, <laughs> I'm not. A, it is so simple. It comes in a little freeze dried vial that I just reconstitute with some water and set up an IV drip and it takes about 10 minutes to administer. But I'm not allowed to bring it to the country. So that's another little journey that I shall be going on. We are hoping for great changes <laughs> and to spread this material throughout the world because cancer is one of the um, issues that affects so many people's lives, as does addictions and hep C. So just briefly, um, let's finish with a, a little story. I think we might be able to just fit that in if you've got a little positive story in the last couple of minutes this has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about was i think it's one of my nice stories i was a fourth year doctor graduated just re, you know four years before and i was doing a locum in general practice at a little country town midwestern queensland called blackhall being a um, being a gp and also they had a small hospital there one day i was called to the hospital saying we have a lady who's 26 weeks pregnant we're sure it's 26 weeks and she has twins and there's a foot sticking out <laughs> please come so i racked my brains as to what i was going to do and remembered a small section in my obstetrics textbook about how you put your hand in push the push the babies apart and pull them out foot feet, feet first so i had to get an anesthetist he was in another town 100 miles away and he came, I think he averaged about 100 miles an hour coming to me, and so I did this procedure, delivered these 26-weekers, and even if they were 30-weekers, they did very well. They both breathed up very well, um, became pink, but they were so tiny, they were so tiny. And it became very obvious within an hour or two, the little boy had an obstruction in his bowel. So I rang up the hospital in Brisbane and said, please send me a plane to get these little ones out. And they said, oh, Bruce, they'll be dead by tomorrow morning. If they're still alive tomorrow morning, then um, <laughs> we'll send you a plane. I then called for humidity cribs. Well, what I was given was little glass boxes with water in the bottom with a heating element and two electric light bulbs because that was the state of technology in Blackhall back in 1971. <laughs> And it was very obvious that I was going to have to set up some intravenous fluids for these little these. And fortunately, I managed to get them. Um, we just had butterfly needles that had just become available. And I managed to get that into a vein in their legs. And that lasted for the three days because what happened, a, a dust storm arrived and no planes could come in for three days. <laughs> and after the third day, finally, a Fokker Friendship landed where they had all the fancy humidity cribs. The doctor and nurse jumped off the plane um, and um, treated me as if I didn't know what I was doing, even though I kept them alive for three days. <laughs> and they took off and went back to Brisbane. Next day I was rung that the um, little boy, unfortunately, had died on the operating table. The little girl was doing well. Now, that's the first part of the story. The second part, which is the beautiful part, is I had a practice in Sydney. And I had this patient come in one day, and this is back in 93, 92, 93. And she came in and she said, oh, I'm going on holidays to Blackhall. I'm going to a 21st birthday. I said, oh, I delivered twins. The little boy died, the little girl survived. And she'd be about 21 now. And she said, hmm, I think that may be who's 
21st birthday I'm going to. And sure enough, it was. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so sometimes you've got to live a long time to hear the consequences of the good that you do. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great note to finish on, and especially as this is the last program before the new year. So we'd like to wish all the listeners a very, very happy, safe and healthy new year with good longevity. And we'd like to thank today Dr Bruce Whelan for being special guest on Navigating the Cancer Maze. Bye for now. See you next week. Thank you, Bruce. Bye for now.